I was lying there faced with my own mortality. There was no kind of blinding white light, no angels, no anything. I was lying there thinking, oh my God, is this it? I'm going to die. That's Jonathan Frostick. He's in his mid-40s, he's very smiley, and he has a senior management job in financial services. But about six months ago, he had a serious heart attack. And the first thing that came into my mind was, of course, what I was predominantly focused on when I had my heart attack. So I sat down at my desk, it was a weekend, and I just, like most people do, kind of set out the week ahead. And the first thing that struck me was I had this meeting with my manager, and you know, I really wanted to have this conversation. I had some key points I wanted to cover off. And that was the first thing that came to my mind. I was thinking about my team at work. I was thinking about my children. I thought, oh my God, I haven't updated my will. Is my wife going to find me dead in my office? And faced with a very strong realisation of your own mortality is something that I hadn't personally had to face before, where you think, I may not be here in 20 minutes. I may not be here in two hours. What am I going to do? And so I got used to using LinkedIn as a professional social media site. And I thought, I need to caption this. I, I need to kind of highlight where I've got this wrong so other people can learn. And so I just wrote down what was on my mind and, you know, I almost affirmed to myself that if I was to live, this is what my approach will be going forward. And I can say with absolute certainty that having a heart attack quite possibly was the best thing that could have happened to me. Welcome to Working It from the Financial Times. I'm Isabel Berwick. Jonathan's LinkedIn post went viral, and in it, he detailed his terrifying brush with death and made a list of pledges and things he'd do differently now he's witnessed his own mortality. They go like this. One, I'm not spending all day on Zoom. Two, I'm restructuring my approach to work. Three, I'm really not going to be putting up with any shh at work again. Life's literally too short. Four, I'm losing 15 kilograms. Five, I want every day to count for something at work, else I'm changing my role. And six, I want to spend more time with my family. He signed the post off with, and that, so far, is what near death taught me. Pretty compelling. But this episode isn't just about Jonathan, although we'll hear from him again later. It's about the culture he's become part of, the LinkedIn influencers who bear all online. And is that a good thing, or is it possible that the trend for blurring the boundaries between our professional and our personal lives are maybe not as healthy as it sounds? So here's Jonathan on what happened next. And then hour by hour, the post was getting so much interaction, and it just overnight, I think it hit too many, and then, then it was like, wow, that's a lot. And I mean, I, I can't remember the impressions now. It's, it's well over, I think, like... I don't know, 12, 14 million impressions so far. And people interacting around the world. I mean, from Brazil to Australia, Europe, everywhere, suddenly was like, wow, this has really resonated with me. You've made me change my life as well. And it made people think, which was, was a positive outcome. And that, wow, you changed my life kind of comment is what it's all about here. I mean, Jonathan's story has a happy ending, but all of these stories tend to be big, emotional, deeply personal, and completely at odds with what we traditionally think of as the defined boundaries between our work and our lives. So to talk about that and a lot more, I'm joined by working at Regular, my FT colleague, Emma Jacobs, who recently wrote an article on just this subject. Emma, can you remember when this trend for emotional openness on social media and, and this blurring started? Well, I really noticed it during the pandemic, but obviously it's got antecedents well, well before. I mean, there's a big trend for authenticity 
and the idea that you're kind of more yourself at work. That's been going on for some time. And then the whole idea of sharing your mental health stories or sharing your caring responsibilities or sharing your sexuality at work so that you can bring more of yourself to the office. There's been a kind of trend for corporate storytelling that focuses on personal stories. Are there any particular examples that have caught your eye? There was a woman that stepped down from being chief executive to pursue becoming a mother. And then one man talked about how his partner became transgender and that courage inspired him to change careers and become a photographer. And there was somebody else who talked about that she was worried that her dying father wouldn't see her graduate, so she went in graduation robes to her father's hospital bed. I mean, very moving personal stories. And these are all on LinkedIn? Yeah. In fact, I published an article about an example recently where a very senior gay lawyer in the city of London had come out on LinkedIn to his entire network. I mean, all his friends, family and close colleagues knew, but he wanted to make that point and to tell everyone he'd got married to his longtime partner. It's fascinating. I mean, there's so many examples of this kind of personal sharing story. (laughs) Yeah, I feel like there's been a sea change in the last, well, as you say, since the pandemic. But for Jonathan Frostick, the post he wrote about his heart attack wasn't actually out of the blue. He was part of this trend and he'd been posting about vulnerability for some time. I started making myself vulnerable probably in 2020 because it was becoming exhausting to go to work and not be who I am as an individual. I think what's happening now is that as we evolve in our use of social media and and LinkedIn being professional social media, effectively people are now using, I think, LinkedIn to be more authentic. And so subsequently they are themselves. So when they go and approach an employer or they're looking at their career or their work life or however you want to frame it, they are now that individual, that entity of which they want to take themselves and go and work somewhere as opposed to historically some people identify with the outside world by using their work to form their identity. And what we're seeing now is a lot more, I think, people being individual and being authentic and subsequently also demonstrating that vulnerability as well. Yeah, it's much healthier. Mm, And we're not just a package of skills. We are a lot more than that. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) That's all true, undoubtedly, but some of these posts... I think sometimes I feel there's a tinge of reality TV about them. You get invested in the character and there's a sort of traumatic payoff. Emma, do you, do some of the posts, obviously not Jonathan's, but does some of the things that we see on LinkedIn now make you feel a bit uneasy? Well, I mean, there's some that are just straightforward humble brags that are <laughs> that make me not only feel uneasy, but make me feel deeply cringe. <laughs> but then There is a success bias towards all of this, which is not to denigrate from Jonathan's obviously life moving event, but he started posting about his vulnerability when he was at a particular point in his career. And nobody really wants to know about the rubbish that you have to deal with when you're in the gutter. People don't like those kind of stories. So Jonathan's sharing a story from a position of strength. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I suppose you didn't know that at the time. But but some of these failure stories, you know, there is a big failure narrative around. It's actually quite fashionable to talk about failure, but publicly. But as you say, people tend not to talk about it while they're failing. It has to have a kind of redemptive arc, which I think can perhaps be quite difficult for people to read if you are in that failure place when you read them. I mean, it could be horrendous to watch everyone's successes on social media and just never hearing that they failed in 
the process to get there. I worry that some of this oversharing might affect people's careers. I have heard from people recently that employers do trawl through LinkedIn posts and it's all very well posting about your mental health issues on LinkedIn or somewhere else and being very open. And that might work in some contexts, but there are some employers that I think still take a dim view of that, although they might not say so publicly. What do you think, Emma? I mean, there's a big kind of race for employers to look like they encourage people to be caring of their mental health and they kind of do lots of programs, wellness programs. We discussed it before. But, you know, whether they really want to deal with these issues and there's still a lot of stigma to struggling with your mental health at work. I totally agree, Emma, but let's hear what Jonathan Frostick thinks about it. If we look at professional social media, many different industries and and companies are evolving in terms of what they seek and what they need. And I think there is an underlying fear by some people who are concerned that actually oversharing on professional social media could be damaging to their professional profile. And And that may well be the case. I think it's like most things. You should be comfortable being your authentic self. I think Jonathan's really convincing in what he says, but I think there are plenty of examples, and he alludes to it there, where people's views, for example, have got them into trouble. I mean, the most extreme example of that I can think of is those January the 6th rioters who posted their exploits on the Facebook pages and then got sacked. Can you think of any other examples? I mean, I think LinkedIn has less of a problem with it than Facebook and Twitter and possibly TikTok, (laughs) because I think people still have a kind of professional veneer on their posts. Let's talk about TikTok a bit, because you wrote an article about employees going viral on TikTok with less than flattering dances, rants about their employers. What's that trend and how's that affecting employers and staff? Well, I guess it's like any kind of new social media that employers want a piece of it when they see it doing well. So people really like to see retail assistants doing dances or kind of explaining their job. And actually, it is a really good way for people to see what the job entails. I mean, as well as being funny. I mean, there are good creative TikTok sales assistants that are really funny and good at entertaining people. And then there's lots of posts, say, about carers that kind of show you what the reality is you know what it's like to lose one of your clients or what it's like to come back exhausted or there were carers talking about the kind of fuel shortages and how difficult it was to do their job but you know that can land you in trouble too I know I mean the TikTok's incredible because I mean I love it and you love it too and our kids love it but it's opened up a whole new front in this sort of exposing yourself, but also it exposes your employer. Presumably they're exposed too, especially with TikTok. Yeah, you know, there's this whole kind of complaints meme that is if the customers are really annoying, then you can kind of slag them off. I mean, that has got some assistants into trouble and then suddenly it's become fashionable and it's a thing to do. And actually it's quite encouraged among some, kind of loosely encouraged among some employers. So not officially encouraged. No, but there's no, I mean, the rules are really loose and it's also it's hard for employers to understand what will catch on it's interesting because this i mean you make this point in your article this is a world where the rules are evolving all the time and they're not static and i guess that comes to this sort of generational issue it's like should we all be bearing all or is it not even a question because it's generational and then and for the next generation it's a no-brainer i mean jonathan's not young he's in his 40s but Do you think this is just going to become normal for staff and ourselves as people in in their 20s and 30s? There is a generational shift in that younger people seem more comfortable talking about 
their identity and their mental well-being. And that has trickled up in some cases. But I think that there is a real kind of range. You know, not all young people like bearing their soul. And some people will always like having work and personal lives being separate. And some people like to integrate the two. You know, you and me have got quite a few friends from work. Other people might like to just go home and have their actual friends, you know, that they see as proper friends distinct from the colleagues. Maybe actually, that might be another episode. Have, have our friends at work become our actual friends in the pandemic? Well, I guess what I've learned from this is that there is an element of power about this. If you have some power or agency, it's easier. And in fact, you made that point earlier that people have been talking about their mental health for years, actually, but they tend to be quite powerful people. It's a lot harder to share your vulnerability. I mean, if you look at people who have been harassed in the Me Too episodes, it's a lot harder to share that story when you are young and vulnerable and perhaps in precarious employment than when you're senior. I mean, although there are risks attached to looking less powerful and kind of more vulnerable, it's just that you've got certain status and it might be seen as brave rather than kind of foolish. I think what I'm taking away from this is that vulnerability is fine and good, actually, but you have to pick the time and the platform carefully so that you don't damage your own self-esteem, career, and maybe there are wider considerations around your family and friends. I think Jonathan's story is brilliant and I'm really pleased to have heard it, but I think he was really careful about how he managed his story. And I think there's a lot we can learn from that. Many thanks to Jonathan Frostick and Emma Jacobs. And if you want to read more about Jonathan's story and the trend for sharing everything on LinkedIn, search Emma Jacobs on FT.com. And I'll put a link to that article and Emma's recent column about the workers who are TikTok stars in the show notes. And please do get in touch with us. We want to hear from you. We're at workingit at FT.com or you can get in touch with me direct at Isabel Berwick on Twitter and Instagram. Working It is produced by Novel for the Financial Times, with thanks to Anna Sinfield, our producer, and executive producer Joe Wheeler, with research from Pippa Smith and Lee Meyer, and mixing from Alex Port-Felix. We have editorial direction from Renee Kaplan and production support from Persis Love. Thank you for listening. <laughs> <laughs>